but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to the Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. It's been 82 years since we've done a TBS mailbag. You're looking at me like, what is he talking about? It has, it's 84 years. 84 first years? First of all, that's the meme. <laughs> uh, it has been quite a long time mm -hmm. and we got so many questions. I don't know if we'll be able to fit them all in one episode. It may be a part one, part two situation. What I like about doing this mailbag thing now, currently, is that when we do episodes and we make our own agenda, sometimes I feel like we miss a lot of stuff. So getting questions from folks allows listeners to, in a way, set the agenda themselves and also fill in some of those gaps. Mm -hmm. And it also allows us to ignore current events. Mostly. We're going <laughs> <laughs> to talk about two current events in tennis specifically. Uh, and then the rest will be solely mailbag driven. Yeah. The the two current events we're going to talk about were the subject of questions. So technically, all of this content is listener generated. Mm -hmm. The first one is the reunion of Maria, Venus, and Serena at the Met Gala. It shook the world. A lot of the response and the reaction to this photo was based on a presumed feud between Serena and Maria specifically. And it made a lot of folks question whether they had imagined said feud <laughs> and if it was just all a big presumption this entire time. Mm -hmm. I am here to tell you that you did not hallucinate the past 15 years. It was not a presumed feud. It was a real feud. Uh, the evidence is all over. Just last year, in the middle of the pandemic, Serena appeared on Game Set Chat with Zena and Chanda, and out of nowhere, literally out of nowhere, just <laughs> threw Maria under the bus, backed up, went again, and had a big old laugh about mm -hmm. it. Uh, you know, she didn't mention her by name, but it was very clear when she said something about uh, players being nabbed for drugs and not serving suspensions that were long enough. It was clear she was talking about Masha, apropos of nothing, truly. That it, it, it had stunned, nothing to do with the conversation It at the stunned time. Chanda so much that she could not stifle her laughter as much as she wanted to. <laughs> it happens in the middle of the night because they're at the Met Gala. We know that they're all there. Venus and Serena, we see the pictures. We see all these other tennis players that were able to attend the Met Gala in New York. Because it happened in the fall this year, right after the U.S. Open, folks had the time. We knew that Maria was there. And it did cross my mind. I was like, well, what's that going to be like if they run into each other? You know? Mm -hmm. And then I'm winding down before bed in the middle of the night. And these photos just start popping up. It's like some kind of, what's that? Charlie's Angels. Yes, Charlie's Angels. I'm doing the gun <laughs> yeah, finger yeah. thing right now. They're posing together, having a, la a laugh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so that first photo came out with the sisters and maria like oh that's cute that's interesting i didn't know they talked it, it shouldn't be surprising that 
Whatever tension between them may have thawed a bit now that Maria has retired, they've been friendly in the past, but they've also made really nasty comments about each other publicly, and not that long ago, really. Let me tell you, I was heaving gutturally when I saw that picture the first time. (laughs) So I'm not saying that anyone needs to have a stake or a vested interest in a feud, but I am here to reassure you that these two that this was not um some sort of beef that was conjured by misogynists to create a cat fight quote unquote that did not exist right because that that is definitely a thing it was definitely part of it yes it was definitely stoked Mm -hmm. by that sort of anti-woman sentiment but the dislike between them uh, was palpable but i'm glad that they can kiki now when they're retired like that's cool right and we got further confirmation of this thawing that you referenced Mm. when i guess on a a live instagram live with venus tennis twitter user at like the movie 19 amelie she asked venus about the picture and venus said we were just talking about her serena and serena and i were just talking about marie last night and then we saw her (laughs) and we both said that to her individually yeah lie lie number one and number two Let's see, there you're going again. You're doing it. Like, let's just take her at face value Oh, we were just talking about you. (laughs) Maybe they were. Maybe, maybe. Oh, my God. And she said, oh, I really wish Maria would come back to tennis. Venus did say that. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm sure Serena would like that. Oh, my God. (laughs) Where's the grace that we're granting these women right now? I thought that was grace. That was grace? (laughs) I thought you were being super shady. I was. (laughs) <laughs> I I enjoyed the moment. Like, look, there's entire an entire semester's worth of material can be taught on the rivalry between Serena and Maria, as lopsided as that was, the roles that they both played in each other's careers. But they're still together, the duo of them, and in this case, the trio of them, a huge part of tennis history. Yes. 2005 onwards so like when when they said oh it's a reunion like it it conjured a lot of reminiscing for me yeah it is a reunion the there are so few people who know what it's like to do what they do at that level to have those achievements to play that many times in momentous matches that of course there it's not surprising there would be some affinity there respect right respect that's what it is like they know what it's like to not be each other but experience a lot of the same things venus acknowledged in her own way the presumed feud and then pivoted to say even though we compete hard we still love and respect each other Mm -hmm. and that's and then said maria we told you to come back we want you to come back that goes for you as well caroline i mean the tories are completely different place now and i'm sure the williams sisters feel that Oh, yeah. And at this point, Serena's like, she's got a kid. She and Venus are both 40 and above. They've seen it all. There are important things going on in their lives. Like, who has time to fight about Maria Sharapova? I will say, so people were leaking these bathroom photos where Maria and Serena were in the background of someone else's photo and you could see it in the mirror. I mean, it got crazy. You had to (laughs) enlarge the photo to, to peep Maria and Serena in this bathroom, mind you. Meanwhile, this this, is a bathroom. Also, at the Met Gala, I would expect the bathroom to not look like 
a Riverdale High bathroom. That, Even the Riverdale High bathroom looks nicer no, than that. No, that bathroom was like my public high school bathroom. <laughs> what the hell? Is this not like one of the colonizer's best museums? <laughs> I feel they should have a better bathroom. Anyway, the other hot topic that's going on right now is Labor Cup. Because talk about an unforced error. Labor Cup has decided to block pretty much everybody who tweets at them regarding the assault allegations against that guy who is now featured at the Labor Cup. It is a it's an interesting public relations strategy. They obviously have been tweeting promotional things about Labor Cup. Zverev is, you know, has played in Labor Cup several times. He's part of Team Europe. But when Labor Cup tweeted about him, they were inundated with people saying, hey, did you hear about this? And linking the story from Slate. But it's not just that. They were Mm. playing in our faces. Oh, yeah. This is what's been happening this entire time. It's not just that these tournaments can't promote him in any way. It's the way they go about promoting him. They issue a picture. They tweet a picture where he's talking about his wonderful memories from the last Labor Cup. And they're glorifying that when, in fact, some of the allegations of domestic abuse have been alleged to have taken place at that same event. Right. So those wonderful memories allegedly include what went down. And the first story alleged that a Labor Cup employee was aware and involved in one of the incidents. And that the Labor Cup official was named but chose to not cooperate with this, the reporting. Right. Probably uh, after speaking with a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, it was It's just a strange choice to completely ignore it, uh, but not only ignore the accusations, but go on the offensive and block people. Plenty of people who have tickets for your event. Right. Like, these are people <laughs> who would gladly spend money and go support your event. Spend Labor Cup kind the of labor money. Labor Cup money. This isn't like... Cleveland Challenger money. This is or Labor even Cincinnati Cup money. money, right? And if you are trying to give the impression that okay, one of your officials was named in this story and this investigation as participating in some kind of covering up, why then would you now give the impression that you are actively doing more covering up by blocking right. people and the replies and whatnot? When in fact, you can't block the hashtag. Folks have pivoted instead of adding the Labor Cup. There are no hashtag the Labor Cup. You can't stop that. Mm-hmm. So all you've done is made yourself look like a complete amateur and a complete fool. This is an example of the Streisand effect, which I've seen people talking about a lot recently when... I didn't even know what this was. Yeah. I had to look it up. So apparently back in the 90s, Barbara Streisand objected to an aerial shot of her home mm-hmm. being filmed, right? And nobody would have known about it, would have gone away, except she made such a big stink about it. So now this photo is widely circulated and got much, much bigger because of her complaining. Mm. And why? Because people are petty. Right. And we should (laughs) know this base instinct of human beings. (laughs) Like, we will not, Uh, we will never not be petty when required. Now, at the Labor Cup's strategy... To block anyone who brought up these allegations was clearly that. It was a strategy on a management level. It's not something that some social media intern Mm -hmm. just does off the cuff. This was clearly their approach 
And they had to have known that the allegations would have been raised, especially since one of these incidents was alleged to take place at their event. So now what they've done is they've amplified it. People are, you know, wearing the block from Labor Cup as a badge of honor. As, I mean, just a perfect illustration of tennis wanting to silence these allegations. Mm. The Labor Cup is also a ridiculous event. I it's mean, always been a ridiculous t- event. It like, continues to be a ridiculous event. Now you can get ranking points from this event where you don't necessarily earn a place in this event. Oh, retroactively, remember? As because well, John yeah. Isner has a, a victory over Rafa Nadal um, retroactively. I mean, people well, are saying... they just issue a wildcard to? Oh, Jack Sock? Oh, no, sorry. He's an alternate. The number 163 player in the world, Jack Sock. I wonder how many non-European players they had to leapfrog over to get to that alternate. I understand that he's played in Labor Cups before and he was successful, but like, come on guys, this is an ATP event. This is not an exhibition. Back in when, 2017, when he used to be popular? (laughs) (laughs) People are saying boycott Labor Cup. I was gonna do that anyway, cause that's how I am. I never liked this thing. So for me, it's a good excuse not to pay attention. If you're looking for us to cover the Labor Cup, the actual tennis that happens there, I, I assume it's happening this weekend. We will not be doing that if they're <laughs> so it's a, swift, it's a go, swift no you gotta go somewhere else you got your warning diving into this mailbag note samantha from cincinnati asks is it just me or is the game no more boring because of the automated line calls and the lack of ability to challenge challenges were little mini dramas fun dramas i miss them is this just me plus what the fuck with how late the calls are please discuss true sometimes they are very late and i guess part of this is just working out the kinks of the new system i don't know i could go either way on this i don't like that jobs have been taken away and the typical development route from lines judge to chair umpire like that's gone right so Mm -hmm. it'll be i don't know maybe more difficult to train chair umpires without that kind of experience i don't know that i miss the challenge What I really enjoy is the psychodrama of a player challenging the computer, knowing that the result will not change. But they just need. That's Mm -hmm. just funny to me. Oh, I, I, it's a complete waste of time to me. (laughs) It adds nothing to the tennis. Mm. If we know that the result will not be changed, for me, that's a waste of time. Yes, a waste. Who are you, Patrick Maratoglu? Time, time, time. No, no, no. You're you're on a schedule. (laughs) No, I like. The challenges. Oh, okay. And I do miss them for those same reasons that Samantha mentioned. The little mini dramas, the fun dramas. Mm -hmm. This automatic line calling is meant to bring more fairness into the game, along with cutting time. But I don't pay the cutting time any mind because we know that there are several minutes that could be cut during the course of a match that the powers that be pay no mind to. They don't care. (laughs) Right? Yeah. So yeah. that these these little extra seconds for a challenge, set aside what it's like to watch on TV, it's a lot of fun to watch in person. Yeah. The collective okay. tennis viewing experience when a challenge is made and you're all looking up to the big screen and everybody's quietly like building a crescendo of claps. Mm-hmm. And then it happens and it's like, ah. And then you move on. <laughs> you know, it, it became part of the tennis viewing experience. Right. And I don't know that the net positive is that great here. 
especially when we know that the system is not 100% accurate. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Uh, now, is the goal to reduce the number of bodies on court because of the pandemic? Is the goal to it's cut definitely costs? not that. It's definitely is not it that. to sort of streamline the game and use social distancing as an excuse? Is it all of those things? Because to me, that affects how I read the situation. Will we ever know? Doubtful. Right. It's just going to be one of those things that has become a byproduct of the pandemic. It happened during the pandemic and folks will just stop being loud about it eventually. And it'll just be part of the game. We saw a lot of players when it first became a thing being very openly mistrustful of it and annoyed. Yeah. Yeah. We still have that sometimes here and there. But by and large, folks have just accepted it and moved on. Players, like I've said so many times, are always going to need some kind of outlet. So they're either going to scream about the challenge being wrong. They're going to argue with the computer that cannot be overturned. They're going to take a 10-minute bathroom break. They're, like they, You have to get aggression and tension out in some way. right? There's always going to be something to argue about. And a lot of times it's not principled. It's just because... There's a lot of excess emotion built up that has to come out in some way. I, the, the challenge system previously was not perfect. If the call is wrong, the call is wrong. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't have to challenge it. Tessa asks us, how did you become a fan of tennis? And can you pinpoint a specific tournament slash year slash match that made you go from casual tennis fan to super tennis fan? I feel like whenever we do a, a mailbag, this is a question that comes up. Mm-hmm. And why we I'll... choose to answer it again is because we have new listeners since the last time we'd have done this episode. And we absolutely do not expect new listeners to go back and listen to all 200 plus episodes of The Body Serve. <laughs> and in fact, caution against it. Um, <laughs> I know yours, so I'll tell you yours. Oh, what are you telling me? Your, uh, your specific tournament slash match that turned you on to tennis as a fan. Okay. So yours was 1994 Wimbledon, where... Conchita Martinez beat Martina Navratilova in the final. Correct. Is that right? And then it was cemented. My love for tennis was cemented at the 1994 US Open when my new fave at the time, Arancha Sanchez Vicario, won the women's title. And Andre Agassi wearing one of my favorite tennis kits of all time, the black, blue, and white with the ponytail, with the hat, collapsed to his knees in disbelief, I cannot believe it, he won the U.S. Open. This was I, 94? 94, yes. Mm-hmm. So he came with a bundle and went to the U.S. <laughs> Open barber and said, I need you to tack this on. Glue it in, mm-hmm. Gorilla Glue, What? however you make it happen, just make it work. <laughs> so I remember kind of starting to watch tennis around the 99 U.S. Open. Obviously, Serena's first Grand Slam win. I got really into tennis probably about a year and a half later. So with the 01 and 02... Australian Opens, I remember very clearly. Mm-hmm. You had a specific Ooh, rooting interest I had a, I back had a then. Problematic fave, girl. <laughs> Jennifer Capriati's comeback story at the time was just too good to ignore, right? And then in the 02 Australian Open final, saving four championship points in this awful heat against Martina Hingis. Hingis's racket went flying across the court. It was just too good. I've, People forget how much of a great com- sports comeback story that was. Yeah. With all that she went through. And the comeback started in like 97, 98. It built over a while. It didn't happen overnight. Right, right. And you wondered, I remember watching that in real time, wondering if this would ever happen for her. Mm -hmm. 
And I mean, what would making it happen look like? Because she wasn't a Grand Slam champion before. Right. You know, she hadn't won one yet. So what what was the most that we could expect from Capriati as she'd become an adult playing tennis on the mm-hmm. WGA Tour? And it, it took a while, but she did it. Coming into tennis like in 2000 and 2001, watching Venus have those two summers in a row, watching Serena sort of ramp up to her first Serena Slam. This was... I mean, I feel so lucky to have come of age in tennis during that WTA golden era. I'll fight anyone who says that's not the golden era. How look would at you the, fight them? Look would at the you top... throw fisticuffs? <laughs> the top 10 at any moment in 2002 is out of this world, is crazy. Eric asks us via email, if we are to assume that Serena Williams and Novak Djokovic will never complete another Grand Slam cycle... Whose legacy will be most hurt by coming up a match or too short? Why? This is such a good question. And I have truly agonized over the answer. I think it's... <laughs> I want to say that it's Djokovic easily. Oh, whose career will be most hurt by it? Like, whose legacy? Yeah, because, like, in... I mean, it hadn't been done since 1969. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it had been a much longer time... Right. There's a lot at stake. Whereas the Serena miss was manufactured. The drama and hype surrounding it was manufactured to a great extent. The Margaret Court record? Okay. We know that that didn't become a thing until the mid-2000s. Right. Right. Okay. But she was trying to do something that Steffi Graf had done, who in my mind is really her, her chief rival for GOAT status. Novak, I mean, the fact that it has not been done in men's tennis sets Novak apart because he got so close. I don't think he needed that to eventually become the GOAT of men's tennis. Mm -hmm. He does have two rivals who are active players who are really, really close and can best him in certain categories, but also pale in comparison in other categories that are normally used for GOAT, you know, criteria. This is why I think it would hurt him more. Because it would be one of those things that the other two will never be able to have. That's true. In those conversations, right? It's one more hat in his feather. Serena doesn't really have the, what's the word, the competition Mm. for GOAT status on the woman's side. Well, this is complicated because Serena has won four slams in a row two times, Mm -hmm. non-calendar year. But Martina Navratilova won six slams in a row and never got a calendar year Grand Slam. Steffi Graf had the golden slam in 88 i think there there are there's a lot of competition if you're looking at pure numbers with serena with novak let's say he wins two more majors and the other two don't it's done and dusted his legacy is secured like grand slam be damned right but you know people are gonna make all these different arguments on the men's side there's still all these different metrics that people will use if you're into that kind of stuff i'm saying on the woman's side it's settled we're six years out from Serena not winning the calendar year slam. And who is really looking at it like a, a big black mark on her career? Right. It's right. more like, a, oh my God, I can't believe that happened. To Vinci? How did the pressure get to her? You know? <laughs> right, and then you right. think about what that was like and what that might have been like for her. And the in- incredible pressure that was manufactured that she bought into. Mm-hmm. Who wouldn't at that point... <laughs> That makes it more of a a dramatic event than what we witnessed with Novak. But I don't think it means 
or would have meant as much to Serena's career as it will or would have to Novak's. Because as mm. you said, Serena's already had the Serena Slam, what, twice? Yeah. She was never going to get a Golden Slam that Steffi had. Serena's status is already cemented. I think at this point, while I genuinely feel that it's no shame to either that they didn't get it. No. You know, like, no. this is not what this is. Trying to answer this question, I think it would have meant more to Novak's legacy if he had gotten it. All right. Do you buy any of that? I haven't decided if I agree, but I think you make a very strong argument. I think right down the middle, it's not 1969 anymore. It's not 1988. It's 2021. And this shit is almost impossible, right? It might be the one of the highest achievements in all of sports. So no shame to either of them for not accomplishing it. I think the non-calendar year slam is, it's not the same. Like it's almost the same, but it's not the same because the pressure is completely different. Eric also asks, how do you think the runs of Raducanu and Fernandez impact the progress of Coco Goff? Motivating or frustrating? Far yeah. be it from me to think I can get into the mind of a teenager. <laughs> yeah. Like that is... <laughs> you will have to ask Miss Goff because I know how I would feel. I would be... Pressed. Pissed off. You'd be pressed. Yes. It takes not much for you to get to that <laughs> state of prestitute. I would be so mad. But the thing that sets athletes professional athletes apart from me is that professional athletes <laughs> the thing the, the only thing the only thing <laughs> is that professional athletes can often use that as fuel mm-hmm. and it may not happen tomorrow it may happen five years down the road but you know great competitors can use that resentment and that that anger as fuel a venus williams had to watch her sister the younger one win her Grand Slam first. And you saw her in the stands. She was pissed off. She had that hood on. And then look what she did. I mean, she had historic seasons in 2000 and 2001. She became the queen of Wimbledon. Like, These are all projections. Yeah. These are all our own projections. I'm just saying, it it can be motivating. It can be infuriating. Mm. And I don't know how Coco thinks of it or if she thinks of it at all. Mm -hmm. Coco said she was happy for them. That they're her Mm -hmm. friends. Yes, and I believe her. What I do know about this situation with Raducanu winning the title, with Fernandez being in the final, I watched that match. And one of the things that I thought was, part of me was glad that it wasn't Coco in that final. Mm. Because I saw what that build-up and hype was before the match, during the match, and what's happened since. And I just know it's going to be tenfold for Coco should it happen anytime soon, right? I I was not ready for that for her. That actually brings us to a related question, also from Eric, that I I think has a clean segue here. Much was made about the success of teenagers at the US Open. Age eligibility changes may have shortened people's memories of teen starlets like Celis, Capriati, and Hingis. Should these rules be relaxed again to allow for youth movements like we saw in New York? Before I answer it, I want to provide a little refresher on what the age eligibility rule is. In 1994, and it has been updated several times since, the WTA instituted this age eligibility rule, which would limit the number of professional tournaments that young players could play. You know, 14-year-olds are allowed to play eight tournaments, but only three tournaments above the 60K level. And it increases progressively from there. Famously, Coco Golf was limited by this eligibility rule, over the past few years because she was so young when she broke out. 
And the reason they instituted this rule was because we had such awful burnouts from young players, Capriati. Exploitation uh, from parents. Right. Yelena Dokic suffered awful abuse from her father, Martina Hingis, while a legend of the game, you know, had to retire with injuries in the early 2000s. And the many, many people who we don't know, who are not Hall of Famers, who simply burned out or didn't make it, who came on the scene like a flash in the pan and just didn't fulfill that promise that was expected of them. Uh, Andrea Yeager is another one who who really had a rough go of it as a youngster. Also, playing that much tennis at such a young age is not great for the body physically in its development. And who knows just how many careers have been cut short from playing too much high-level competitive tennis on the tour at so young an age. Mm-hmm. The, the current age eligibility rule is kind of part of this larger player development program that the WTA does, which includes a mentorship program with former players, which they claim is the first mentorship program of this type in professional sports. They do this kind of WTA university where they learn about the history of the WTA. They do media training. They get financial and business advice scheduling and career planning advice so there's kind of this whole suite of services for younger players that goes side by side with the age eligibility rule i personally think this rule is really important i really really want it to stay because for every monica Sellis, for every coco goff we get players who are exploited who are abused simply money destroys families and careers and the expectations placed on these kids are just unreasonable. So I, personally, I would like to see the eligibility rule to remain in place as it is. And the thing is, like these things need to be developed with experts. And the the WTA has talked about you know how they developed the rule, and who gave input, and all those things. And I think that they've done their due diligence in working with psychologists, with professionals in the field of child development, and they've done a good job. I have nothing to add because I agree. With everything you said. <laughs> so I will just... Yeah, I think the cost-benefit is simply not worth it, right? We we may be deprived of some young teen prodigies, but I think the, the human cost is generally too great to make the argument in the other direction. Should we get into Shola's questions? Messy as usual. Well, you know that whenever we have a mailbag, he's going to submit an FMK. So we'll yeah. get to that. But first he asks, have you taken a selfie with a tennis player? And what was your favorite one? Most memorable non-press interaction with a player. I've never taken a selfie with a tennis player. I've taken a photo with Judy Murray. Yes, you did. At the Rogers Cup Mm -hmm. many moons ago. And on the camera, I was going back and just deleting bad shots and, you know, it's one of the things where you're deleting and you're like, oh, that's crap, that's crap, that's crap, that's crap. And I accidentally deleted the Judy Mori photo. Mm-hmm. And I almost, I kid you not, shat myself. <laughs> <laughs> I was so distraught. I left the site. I went home. I Googled how to retrieve photos from memory cards from this specific camera. And here's the top search result. By the way, your Google Assistant is uh, about to tell you how to retrieve photos. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have an Android phone. And Miss Google was just listening in. Mm-hmm. 
And so I recovered the photo and then hauled ass back to site. And I even wrote a story about it. <laughs> yeah. And Judy saw your tweet. Uh-huh. You were able to recover the photo. I did. I have never taken a selfie with a player. Um, I don't know. I don't like selfies. You're I'm no- also very shy. You're notoriously I shy. Do not, I do not talk to players. Yeah. It's not something that you would do. No. Um, I got Sam Stozer's autograph one time and it like took a lot of building up for me to like go up to her after her practice because it was like all children and me. <laughs> you got Andy Murray's autograph Yeah, once. but that was like in a lineup. You know, yeah. it was one of those things. The Cincinnati tournament will like drop something on their app like so-and-so will be at the autograph station in two minutes. And so if you're one of the people who get there fast enough, you can get in line and talk to them. Most memorable non-press interaction with a player. This answer is going to be a cheat on all levels because I was still there as credentialed media in Cincinnati and I was leaving the press building and who do I walk by? I, I use this as an example because it didn't happen in press or like in an official press capacity. It wasn't a press interaction. Who do I walk by? But retired tennis player, somebody who I, I talked endless smack about on this show deservedly so justin gimmel stop <laughs> and mm-hmm. i was like uh <laughs> totally out of the blue did not expect that to happen it caught me off guard i was like oh my god hide my credential in case he <laughs> he recognizes like, does he know who i am how would he know how would he know because that could have gone sideways <laughs> uh again I have not, I've had very few interactions with players outside of like traditional press areas because I simply don't talk to anybody. The only other thing I'd add walking around a tennis site, in this case, Cincinnati again, just out of the blue, Garbini Muguruza just galloped by. And it was the first time I'd seen her in person. And the confidence and the aura that she carried with her as she just walked through the site, I just stopped and just watched in awe. Honestly. <laughs> Let's get to the F. Mary kill. Shola does, does has provided be, the following options. Does this need to be explained for folks who've never played this game? I don't think so. I mean, the F means uh, to make love to. <laughs> oh my god. <sighs> Shola has provided the three options of Felix Ojealiasim, Matteo Berrettini, and Riley Opelka. I feel like he could have made this a little more difficult. Mm-hmm. It, because it, to me, the kill is fairly obvious. The category is F. Mary Kill Met Gala Bays. And somehow Opelka made it here with the parentheses assuming he was there in the background. <laughs> <laughs> I think the implication is that Venus invited him. Uh, <laughs> but Venus came with somebody else, first mm-hmm. of all. And also, I think the Met Gala confirmed that Riley is really more of a Grigor situation with the Williams camp. I mean, not really part of the Williams family yet, like Greg, mm-hmm. but not a bae, but more of a friend, well, is what it seems like. There's also very specific criteria for attending this year's Met Gala that we don't know that Mr. Apelka met. You don't think Venus got a plus one? The vaccination, boo. Oh, go- Oh, girl. Oh we my, don't know. Oh we my don't goodness. know. We don't know. Yeah. How would we know? Let's not 
let's not make that assumption because Venus came with somebody else. This this isn't like Rihanna missing it. Anyway, you know, like he dies. He's killed. He's felled. The tree is felled, chopped to the ground. I mean, no offense to Mr. Opoka. It's just considering the competition. Right. Personally, I would... This is going to be... This is gross. <laughs> I would marry Mateo, and you can fill in the rest. <laughs> so... <laughs> uh, d- just stop. Just don't don't go any further, because I am ashamed. But, oh you know... Oh, Lord, my stars. Mateo is Italian. He seems like a sweet guy. Let me just uh, Google how old Felix is right now. <laughs> he is of age. I'm not saying that I think about Felix all the time. I'm just saying... I think he's 21 now, mm-hmm. right? Yes, he's 21. 21 in two months. Right. 21.2. Oh, f- fine. I'm just saying between the two, if it was like, oh, you have to spend your life with somebody, I'd probably go with Mateo right now, purely based on personality. How about you? I think Shola did this on purpose because he knew who we would kill. So the other two are difficult. Uh, I'm at a loss for words. <laughs> I think I would do the opposite of what you did okay mm-hmm. without having to speak it specifically <laughs> right fair enough and finally he asks one facet of the game as it is today you would consider changing for example my friend and i were talking about how so much of tennis has changed but the court and net has remained the same so i suggested expanding the size dimensions of the court mm-hmm. i feel like this is very biased toward big hitters <laughs> I would make all tennis courts in the world pickleball courts. No, I'm kidding. Oh my god. This is very triggering for some people. It is so <laughs> annoying, though. A lot of public courts in the U.S. have turned into pickleball. Uh-huh. Because I guess, like, old people like pickleball. No no shade at all, because we played pickleball in gym class in high school, and it was mad fun. I've never played it. I don't even know how to play it. What? It's like a shortened tennis court, right? Yeah. And there's some rules about, like, I don't think you can volley like in front of a certain line. So you can't like oh, poach. I'm really not that interested. It's with a wiffle ball and a wooden paddle. It's like big people table tennis. Okay. Let me tell you, I I couldn't do shit in gym class, but I was really good at pickleball. Anyway, I am totally kidding because I don't I don't want to see any more pickleballization of tennis courts. I would make coaches illegal. Uh that's step 1. Illegal how? <laughs> Uh, they they would be allowed to consult occasionally before matches, but during matches they would have to get on a plane and go to a different country. I would limit coaches' access to social media, specifically Patrick Muratoglu. <laughs> yes, but uh, in all seriousness, if I would make it so any major changes to the scoring, the format, the actual gameplay of tennis would have to go through some sort of tribunal with active and former players. Men and women. Yes. Perhaps a union. You know, if you've listened to this show, how much I dislike smashed rackets. I don't like them. I don't... Oh, oh, players smashing rackets. uh I don't like the violence of it. I don't like the disregard of it for Mm -hmm. the cost of the equipment. Okay. I think if you break a racket, you need to play the rest of the game with it. That's what I think. We'll see how many yeah. people continue to do that. I feel like some commentators have said this before, and I can't remember who. If you smash your racket and cut yourself, what happens? 
because in the current scenario, you have to take in a medical timeout because there can't be blood on the court. Should you surrender the game? You get taped up and then you play the rest of the game with the broken racket. (laughs) (laughs) Even if it's just a stick. Yes. (laughs) All right. This is a question for you, James, and I'm going to beg you to keep it brief because I know you can be very tangential and long-winded when you get into this type of stuff. Oh, is it which... What changes would I make to the Toronto public transit system? Not this time. Not this time. (laughs) Because I have thoughts. James Shank asks, I get the vibe that James is a fellow film nerd. What are some of your films of the last few years that you love? I love a question that is asked of me specifically. I wouldn't say that I'm like, I'm not a film Twitter person. I'm not a film scholar or whatever. I just like movies. You like horror movies. I'm more of a TV nerd, really. Like, I could go on and on about TV. But um, over the, I made a small list. <laughs> over the past few years, some movies that I really loved, new movies, Hereditary, a movie that I loved, not necessarily, I don't think that I enjoyed it, and I would never watch it again, but it's artfully done and deeply horrifying. The Green Knight. So our movie theaters reopened recently in Toronto after many, many months. And I was just looking for something to do on a Sunday, a movie that I didn't even really want to see, but I love Dev Patel. So I was like, well, let me see this medieval fantasy movie. And wow, it was very beautifully done. It was kind of slow. It defied a lot of expectations of 21st century stories. And it was kind of odd and thoughtful. And I cannot recommend it highly enough. It was, it was a gorgeous experience. And medieval lit is very weird. So if you think that it was sort of ambiguous and challenging, medieval literature is much more uh, indecipherable than that movie. Booksmart? There's more. There's more. Booksmart? I mean, I love a teen movie, love a teen TV show. That movie was clever. It had a great house party scene, which is necessary in any teen movie. Loved it. Beanie Feldstein, hello. You may be surprised, 1917. I'm not really like a war movie person, but again, thought it was really beautifully done. Ready or Not, which is a horror movie with Samara Weaving. Absolutely loved that movie. You've been watching, I'm surprised that there haven't been more horror pictures in this selection because that's what you do. Mm -hmm. I often wake up on a Sunday and you've already watched your horror flick for the day. Uh, But a lot of them are old. So of the recent ones, it's Ready or Not, and then The Invisible Man with the Scientologist uh, Elizabeth Moss. That was the last movie I saw before the pandemic. So those are my faves recently. Are you going to ask me if I have any? Well, you weren't asked. <laughs> do, do you have any? Okay. Uh, my favorite film of last year was Minari. Mm-hmm. Easily. Loved it. I'm a sucker for a slow-paced film that's done well, and I thought that checked all the boxes and i'm gonna cheat by including small acts because depending on where you look and see it reviewed it's either treated as a tv series or a collection of films well the director called them films so okay. you're so right. i'm gonna go with small acts and with the one caveat being that the one that's most lauded the one that gets all the critical acclaim, we know. Lover's Rock, was my least favorite of the five. Oh, well, I can't agree And I'm the there. Jamaican here. Right. So, okay. 
Oh, oh, so yours is the only opinion that matters? Not, I'm just saying don't be trying to immediately cut me down to size. Like I don't have any kind of dog in this race <laughs> or what is it? Yeah, dog, yeah, dog in, in the this, fight. Yeah, or whatever. Um, it was perfectly fine until that scene went on for 20 minutes longer than it needed to. <laughs> by the by, the fifth re-singing, okay, I get it. Like this is overindulgence. <laughs> To the tenth magnitude, like it was, it was a bit much. That's it. Yeah, that's it. I'm keeping it short and brief. Okay. Okay, we'll go back to tennis for a moment. Whenever we do mailbags, we get a lot of questions about commentators, which is not surprising. So we have three here that have been kind of lumped together in this commentary section. <laughs> one that made me, one question that made me really laugh was from. Where is this? Jack Magic on Twitter asking, Why <laughs> is Alexandra Stevenson still on air? And thankfully, she granted us the grace of saying, I know you cannot answer this question. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't have to um, wade into that. She says, But my soul would not rest. Real question, though. ESPN asks you guys, TBS, for on-air commentator suggestions. Who y'all got? Why? It is a very fair question. Uh Because we provide a lot of criticism. And it's only fair to ask us, like, can you be more productive? Mm -hmm. And recommend somebody. I don't know if I have anybody specific to recommend. I would just recommend a shift in the way commentators are selected. It doesn't have to be... Bethany Maddox Sands being groomed as the next on-air talent that we can see coming from a mile away. Mm-hmm. doesn't always have to be former players. We can have people who are professionally trained in commentating doing it. Or just pick some random person. Hold a MTV VJ competition <laughs> on... You know what? That's, mm-hmm. that's the Tennis Life, my Tennis Life segment I want to see on Tennis Channel. Do... Yes. Do a MTV VJ version of tennis commentating and let us pick the one that we want. Let me tell you, there are a lot of people out here on tennis Twitter, on the message boards, wherever, who would do a better job than some of the folks on air. These are people who don't have a podcast, don't aren't famous. They know their shit, right? Some of these people just make it uh, like their second living. To know these tennis stats. And it's mind-boggling. Now, do they it, want to be on air? Would they be good on air? I have no idea. Okay, but, but it takes more than that. Knowing yes. stuff. Because there's people behind the scenes to provide those statistics too. There's, And we, yet, so many of the commentators do not heed. Okay, yes. there's. We know there mm-hmm. are so many valid criticisms to be made. But I always want to throw in a little caveat amongst the pylon that we contribute to. Mm-hmm. And often start. Yeah. That... <laughs> Sport commentating and, to my mind, especially tennis commentating, where it's a lot of the same stuff over and over again, it's because it's hard. It's not It's not right. an easy job. Right. And right. what makes it so repetitive is because we're having the same tournaments every year with the same cast of characters and a lot of times the same storylines. And so we can see how it's easy to latch on to certain trite tropes and narratives Mm -hmm. right to be having a fresh commentariat 
it's not an easy thing. So it then becomes a matter of, well, what is the nucleus of commentators that we're putting forth? I think the, the thing that needs to be addressed now is that it's the same cast of characters since forever. ESPN tried with Alexandra Stevenson. The quirkiness was fine up until a point. There's still comedic elements that she adds to it. But I, I don't think that was the intention. I think originally the, the humor was uh, a, a bit camp in that it was people laughing at her rather than with her. Okay, and she could that, have... that may sound super mean, but I don't think that ESPN knew exactly what they were getting into. Okay, fine. But the, the end of the line for me was that Margaret Court segment. It, That's right. when it was she had me for a non-starter. Okay. <laughs> so like they tried with Alexandra, but who else are we getting? Mm-hmm. Right? We need a diversity of voices. We need more people of color. I mean, these are the easy fixes. Mm-hmm. And so I would like to see more people outside of the US, UK, and Western Europe bubble. Would love to see more international voices. Uh, what's Lena doing? Is she busy? Do you think Lena's <laughs> got time for this? <laughs> no. Max Agent no. <laughs> made her rich. <laughs> she doesn't. Probably no interest. But like I'm you know, I'm trying to think of who are the players from outside that the traditional tennis world powers who would add something really interesting to commentary. And who would do it? voluntarily uh i have no idea what it pays so uh i like you would like to see more professionalization in in tennis commentary what about uh commentators and writers from different sports what about we tried that with tom rinaldi uh, sure (laughs) Uh, you know chris fowler does college football as well i don't think to be a tennis commentator you need to be a tennis expert I'd like to see more professional broadcasters try, you know, kind of lead the broadcast. And you have your your color commentator, you have your former player, whatever, to fill it out. The problem is that we have the same people who've been doing it for decades. What's Doris Burke up to? I know she's very busy with the NBA, but she, to me, she is the shining example of a sports commentator. Nobody does it better than she does. So maybe it's not Doris. But maybe you do kind of a an exchange program where commentators who specialize in other sports drop into tennis for a little while. It's the BJ option. <laughs> yes. That's what we need to go yes. with. We got a question via email from Ellen. Which duo would you pick as commentators for a match that was important to you? Her answer is Chanda Rubin and Darren Cahill. A-plus expertise, respect for the players, and true appreciation for the match at hand. And please list, in no particular order, the commentators who tend to get on your last nerve. <laughs> I think we're going to skip that part. I think you know. <laughs> you already know. I mean, it's... it's uh, McEnroe's, Becker's... Like. Listen, like, e- even without naming names, uh, before I answer this question, I want to reference something that Chris Everett brought up on the last uh, one of the U.S. Open broadcasts. She recognized one of the producers who basically led a meeting, a research meeting, where they were informed about all these important stats, these angles that they could bring up during the commentary to kind of bring the commentators up to speed and maybe some some cool factoids that they could drop during the broadcast. 
So it's not surprising that there, there are planning meetings for these broadcasts. What I want to know is, like, first of all, good on Chrissy for recognizing those people who do that work behind the scenes. But what I want to know is why are, well, one commentator in particular so incredibly uninformed if this resource is available and you know who it is? How can you, I mean, it makes it even worse, right, to, to come to a broadcast so unprepared. I would agree with Ellen in that Chanda and Darren would be my top two picks. I'd also like to listen to Lindsay Davenport. I enjoy her as a commentator. Mm-hmm. Of of the people who are out there, sort of in Anglo-American commentary. Yes, the, but the love, stuff that we get. Yeah, I would love to hear Chanda and Lindsay commentate big matches. I would like to see them called up to the big game, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I enjoy Pam courtside specifically because I feel like she more than most notices a lot of what's going on on the court. Yes, and she is no bullshit. <laughs> right? <laughs> I would love to hear Monica Sellis commentate. She's probably busy. She probably got other things she'd prefer to do. Counting but, her billions. <laughs> right? I would love Monica Sellis to be on a broadcast. I'd like to hear more from Andy Roddick. And I understand that doesn't exactly diversify the ranks. Mm-hmm. But I, I I have enjoyed his commentary when I've heard it. Trivia Gabe, we got your question. What can be done about the quote, never going to leave willingly tennis commentary class? And hopefully our discussion in this segment has at least touched on that a little bit (laughs) babes i don't that's an hr question i don't know (laughs) we got an email from robbie asking us four questions about american cities favorite american cities least favorite american cities most overrated american cities and most underrated american cities (laughs) how many american cities have we been to i know so Despite being from the U.S., I I don't think I'm very well-traveled in my own country. Mm. And you probably even less so because probably. you're not from there. Yeah. Uh, favorite American cities? Like, this is so cliche, but New York is, is really that girl. Mm-hmm. It really is. I've been to a city that you haven't been to. Which? Cooperstown, New York. I don't, I don't know You've that I would been. call Cooperstown it's a, a city. A city. It's a city. Okay. On its own. Okay. <laughs> of of the cities that I've been to, like the large cities, Atlanta is a fave. We only spent a weekend, but it was very enjoyable. F- yeah, so? It was very so, enjoyable. Food, lots of trees, uh, totally different feel culturally from growing up north, like up north, mm-hmm. it, you know. Yeah. And I'm not just talking about the different ethnic makeup mm-hmm. versus where I grew up. But the, um, I guess, the, how do I say, like, the friendliness is different. Like, where I grew up, people don't really talk to each other that much. Hmm. And so that felt different in the South. I mean, I I co-sign, I enjoyed my time in Atlanta. Mm. Another city I've been to that you haven't been to, Charleston, South Carolina. That's true. Highly recommend. The best gay clubbing experience I've had in my life was in Charleston. The DJ <laughs> knew what was up. Mm-hmm. Must have been a millennial. <laughs> yes. We've been to San Francisco together. We enjoyed that. Yeah, San Francisco is it's beautiful. It's a gorgeous city. I, it's probably changed a lot since we've been there like... 13 to, years ago. 
Oh, is that how long? Yeah. 13 years ago? Yeah, it's probably even more in, inaccessible mm-hmm. to people. But, it, I mean, it does look and feel like no other city in the country. We saw Dick Vitale while we're out oh, to dinner yes. at Volare, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> in the, in the, the north, pier by where the pier was it? district? Wherever the like Italian area is. Yeah. I forgot what it's called. But it was at a restaurant there. Mm-hmm. Did not really enjoy L.A. No. That so, was... I guess... Would that be... That would be overrated. American I don't know if... Is sure. LA overrated or underrated? I think it's swung back around to underrated. No, it's really underrated? I mean, I didn't love LA, but people on the East Coast, where I grew up, like, hate it. And I I wouldn't say I hated it. No, I just feel like LA has this reputation of being that girl. And she's not. <laughs> You know, she's okay. inaccessible transit-wise. You're stuck in traffic forever. It's very plastic. Like, that's not a misrepresentation. That's an accuracy. Mm-hmm. It, when I went there, I was there, I went twice, I think. Right? Yeah, twice. Mm. It felt like everybody came off of a, manif- a, a factory line. <laughs> everybody was driving a car they couldn't afford, wearing clothes they couldn't afford, to like look this certain kind of way, it was it's kind of gross for me. Mm. All right, uh, favorites. I also love Washington D.C. I know some people feel it's a little boring, but I enjoy that it it feels, despite being the capital, it feels very different from most American cities in that it's very walkable. It's low on purpose. You know, buildings are not that tall. It feels just more accessible. It, to live like in an urban area. Mm-hmm. How about we finish this segment with some of the places in the U.S. that we want to go? We've been talking about going to Chicago forever. How was that interesting? Places we haven't been? That we want to go. <laughs> places that we want okay. to visit in the States. Yeah, I would. I'm. We're going to go to Jen Shah's chalet in Salt oh Lake God. City, Utah. Um, I don't know if she still has it. It may have been seized. <laughs> I want to spend some time in Seattle. I want to yes. spend some time in Nashville. I want to go to Austin, Texas. Texas, as William oh. Shatner says. <laughs> I knew exactly where that was from as soon as he said it. I can't not say Texas mm. without saying Texas. Um, and, and where else? Where, um, where else? Boston. I know I've been to Boston. Underrated American Provincetown. City. Provincetown. I want to go to Provincetown. Okay. Underrated American city, Rochester, New York. Look at you repping the hometown. (laughs) Uh, Ithaca, New York. Again, a very small city, but a lovely place where we went to school. Mm -hmm. Um, So thank you, Robbie, for that question. Do you have any any least favorite American cities? I said LA. Oh, That's the one that I would really just Mm -hmm. dump on. Or any of the ones that we went to in Ohio. I told you, it is mean to insult somebody's hometown. So I I abstain from that question. You just asked me. I know. I know. (laughs) I mean, I've enjoyed Mason, Ohio. There have been places in Ohio I've enjoyed. But we've been to a lot of cities in Ohio, and some of them I really have not enjoyed. True. True. Love to Cleveland, though. Love Cleveland. Catherine asks... For the very many contentious and annoying player-coach interactions, there are a few that tickle me. These include Raducanu and Richardson. 
For example, I thought his passion and humility were so palpable and it was lovely to witness his joy when Raducanu waggled her pointy finger right at him after beating Benchich. Then there is Zidanshek, whose team boogied and laughed while she smiled from the treadmill pre-match during the French Open. I can't find any on the ATP side. Feel free to disabuse me of that arguable lack of observance. How about if you had to assign Zverev, Tsitsipas, and Medvedev some of the most joyless coaching collabs, assign them a female coach, who would it be and why? Mm-hmm. I don't so, think I would wish that on any female coach, as much as I'd love for them to get a lot more visibility any and, of and them? employment in <laughs> tennis. No, so first of all, I would not pair Zverev with anyone. I, I wouldn't really wish that ill upon a coach. Tsitsipas and Medvedev, I think... Um, I think Tsitsipas needs a dominator. He does. I think someone like Martina Navratilova might be a good fit for Stefanos. Because he, you know, he takes these flights of fancy. He, we're not even going to get into this because we've already talked about it. But, you know, the the, um, questionable dalliances with dishonesty, (laughs) let's say. Martina is somebody who has no time for that shit on the tennis. We disagree about a lot of things off the tennis court, but Martina is simply no bullshit about tennis rules. She doesn't want to play let's, you know, she's, I think would be pretty authoritarian as a coach. That's just my read on her. And I think that's something that Stefanos needs. Can you imagine Stefanos? smashing his racket and hitting Martina unintentionally, I mean, she'd rip his head off. Like, it would be done. What about Medvedev? I don't know that he needs any intervention at this moment. I mean, like, he could act better, but... I I, I really do not know how to answer this question (laughs) at all. For one, I honestly, it's one of my biggest blind spots is paying attention to the coaches Mm. Mm. at tennis tournaments. And who these coaches are. You know, unless somebody's been with somebody for a long time, I tend to not take it in or learn their names. I know that sounds really bad. Well, I mean, if it doesn't interest you, it just doesn't interest it's you. Never like, it's never been fun. like a huge interest of mine. But to Catherine's point, trying to find a, a coaching relationship on the ATP side that's joyful and not joyless, <laughs> it seems that maybe these guys need that joylessness perhaps i don't know it maybe it's not something that they need in their right, lives right i don't know i i mean medvedev for example is somebody who's been very successful with his current coaching relationship i think tsitsipas is a good example because the interactions with his dad are so uncomfortable and so often very angry that i think maybe he would benefit from a break mm. in that relationship a pause only they know what, what's best for him. Mason asks, and again, this is a question that we get pretty much every time we do a mailbag. And it seems that every time we get asked this question, there's more developments. Mm-hmm. And so there's maybe a little bit more texture and a few more layers to add. In response, he asks, my question is, what do you all think about the fact that we still have not had an active, openly gay male tennis player on the ATP tour Do y'all think it stems from homophobia on the tour that we don't witness as viewers? 
Or is it really possible that out of the thousands of professionally ranked tennis players currently on tour, that not a single one of them is gay? It's possible. It's always possible. I mean, technically, it's possible. Likely. Highly unlikely. No. Uh, I would bet a lot of money on the possibility that one male professional tennis player is gay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there are some retired male tennis players who live fairly openly, but active players, I don't know. I mean, we don't know until it happens, right? The ATP seems to have taken steps behind the scenes, and reporters have asked questions recently about this alleged survey that went around about uh, players' attitudes toward different things. And so Medvedev, uh, Tsitsipas, Felix Ogele-Sim all commented on the possibility of having a gay player and whether it would be a safe space to come out. There was and they the were most, all supportive. There was the most visibility ever from players, mm-hmm. allies, in tennis at the U.S. Open Pride Day this year. We'd never seen that much gay talk at a tennis no, tournament. Right? No, no. Uh, and so I think it's inevitable. Like, it's, it's definitely going to happen at some point. And the ATP's responsibility here is to, I think, start the conversation increase visibility even if you don't have any openly gay players on the tour you know do things that you think are little and possibly silly like making sure that the brand is visible during pride month um you know professing the openness of the tour just in case anybody wants to come out you have to like i think so many times people have either been forced out or they've had to be really brave to come out in circumstances that are not very hospitable. And it would be great if the kind of the community was already there before the coming out happened. We're not privy to the inner workings of the ATP tour, but for a prospective player to come out and feel safe, the ATP has to let it be known to its players that structurally, organizationally, this is an inclusive and welcoming place. Mm-hmm. That's not something that should be in doubt. In 2021, there's no reason why a professional sporting organization should have its members questioning that. So speculation here, I can only talk about what it seems like from the outside. What you mentioned, them not even paying us any lip service during Pride Month. Maybe that looks different internally. But if I were to make an assumption as to why we haven't had one, it's because for whatever reason, players feel like there is money to lose. Players feel like maybe they're not going to be supported enough by the players in the locker room, by the tour. And that's probably heightened by the fact that tennis is such an isolated sport. You are an individual in tennis Mm -hmm. you're not part of a team you're not coming out to your team and then rolling with your team for that year all 82 games all 162 games you're going from city to city trying to make it on your own and i imagine it's that much more difficult to do if you're worrying about this i've i mean i've heard people people have said to us like why basically why are you up the atp's ass when there is no gay player 
And Is it the chicken or the egg? Exactly, right? At the very least, even if there is no gay player, you've made it clear to prospective talents or your fans who pay mm. your bills that this is an inclusive tour that everyone is welcome, right? And we're not just talking about gays. We're talking about the whole spectrum of difference here, gender and sexuality. So even if there are no gay players, why not do the work because it's the right thing to do? Because it makes the tour stronger, because it makes your product better for its audiences. Yeah. Like what if, even if there are zero closeted players in the top 1000, what are you losing? Maybe you get like 30 to 50 straight players who then change their mind about a few things. Mm. Or because they've had to go to a couple seminars or had <laughs> right. to read some literature or taken cues from the ATP president who said this. And then there's a dialogue in the locker room and somebody says, I don't give a fuck. Like, what? what's it to you? Right. And right. then you have these conversations that happen but in the meantime it's radio silence yeah we just need Lil Nas X to do a tennis video I mean well this is the post Montero world we're living in <laughs> like we could see a player come out tomorrow <laughs> there were a lot of questions so apologies if we did not get to your question that doesn't mean it wasn't a good question just that we're uh, going to probably save it for another time yeah, it, it, as it turns out, I don't think we have enough left for a part two. Yeah, so, so we'll maybe tack it on to a future episode. Yes. We're going to end with some Mariah. Wow, this was a very controversial, very disrespectful question. Thanks, Christopher I'm, from London. Just kidding, but it's tough. He asked, whose vocal do you think is better on When You Believe, Whitney or Mariah? And, uh, I mean, my voice caught I like <laughs> I couldn't breathe for a moment to be forced to answer that question. And there's a, so much I want to say about that song <laughs> that won't necessarily answer that question. Uh -huh. What do you have to say? What? Okay. So I think a lot of my answer is colored by the Oprah performance. Because although I am a lamb through and through, Mariah is my fave. Mm -hmm. I can see this going down yes. shit street already. Oh, Whitney ate her up in that performance. Okay, and oh and I can say Lord. that knowing that Mariah is the queen and I, oh my God. I listen to her albums constantly, nearly every day. Who am I living with? She did. Okay. You could put damn near anybody save for jennifer hudson or jennifer holiday beside whitney and power wise mm -hmm. whitney will eat them up yeah the problem for me with this duet and why i reject and resent what you just said <laughs> is because they have different voices for me equally great voices but voices that do different things and why they're mm -hmm. both part of my vocal trinity mm -hmm. alongside not above or below but alongside one aretha franklin mm-hmm Whitney just stands there and opens her mouth and she'll drown everybody out. With, not with screaming like Miss Hudson. Oh, wow. Oh, but with... Leave Jennifer alone. Melodic tones. You know, it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. So there's this conflation with the strength of Whitney's voice and the greatness of her voice relative to other artists. 
that elevates her necessarily over other artists. And I've never bought into that. And so Mariah was always going to be at a disadvantage singing live with her. And I don't think that the structure of this song <laughs> was best suited to the strengths of these women. And I blame Babyface for that. That's fair. I mean... Because I went back and listened to it again before recording. And tell me why, when you have the two leading voices of that generation, two of the greatest of all times, am I waiting over a minute to hear the other in a duet? Mm -hmm. Like, that's crazy to me. It's not until Mariah's done with her verse that Whitney starts doing her interpolations and they start getting into the soft harmonies part of it, singing with each other. Like, that's the most interesting part of their duet to me. And then that's just a tiny little segue before Blast Off at the end. And so what you wanted with this duet, and I'm sure I wanted it too in real time, was to have a showcase for two of the greatest voices ever. That highlights each of their strengths, which are different. No, I'm saying at the time, I Mm. I wanted the the showdown. Oh, okay. Because I was a dumb (laughs) 13-year-old, you know? But what we needed and what we didn't get was something that showcased both of them together. Oh, okay. Because if you're going strictly by power... Nobody's going to beat Whitney, but that does not mean that Mariah's vocal was bad. No, but no. to your point, her ad libs are really like off the chain. Yes, you know. But to your point, that live performance, as well as the actual recording, Mariah sounds like she's shouting mm. in spots toward the climax, and that you—that's probably the only time you'll ever hear Mariah sound like that on a record. And that, that's because that was what was required of her. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. An example of a great duet that plays on both singers' strengths is any song that Donny Hathaway and Roberta Flack recorded together. They recorded a duet's album. They won Grammys together. Because Donny, he could open his mouth and swallow up anybody. But those recordings didn't do that. They highlighted both strengths. Okay, but that's a man and woman. Sure, like sure. The, the, the template, the framework for that kind of duet is totally different. I'm just saying. I'm just dropping I'm, a little... You I'm know, saying, I want people to stream Donny Hathaway. I'm saying this is a very unique moment in time. Yes, yes. Also, this record was recorded when neither was at their vocal best. Yeah. Do you think Celine Dion was like, well, fuck my drag? She was out here recording with R. Kelly at the time. Those were competing duets that were released basically at the same time. And Celine's with R. Kelly went to number one. But do you remember that song at all? No, absolutely not. Mm. To answer Christopher's question. I guess. uh, The answer is Whitney on that song. Oh, but I was surprised. It needed context. And it's not as cut and dry as people want to make it believe. And Mariah did not struggle vocally against Whitney. It was a setup. And also, you know, they were friends. They yeah. got along great. We love them both. There's no competition. Like at the end when they're going, you gotta bleed, you gotta bleed. <laughs> and they're just like doing these little intricate runs and interpolations over each other. Like, that shit is gold. Mm-hmm. Why didn't we get more of that? You know? Too much bombast. Mm-hmm. Finally, happy anniversary. The 24th such anniversary to Mariah Carey's Butterfly album. An album that becomes closer to perfection with every listen and with each passing year. Can you believe 
that after the falling out, Walter Afanasieff claimed publicly that Butterfly sounded unfinished. Specifically my yeah. all. Isn't that crazy? Specifically my right. all. Apparently, they, like, if dude, I recall correctly. Pare it down. <laughs> Are you not getting the hint? Pare down the instrumentation. This is R&B. My understanding is that they had stopped working together mid my all. Mm. And he, whenever he listens to that record, it doesn't feel like okay. what it should It doesn't be. feel like Hero? No, it sure doesn't. It still sounded like and was a number one. So <laughs> This is giving very much like the Beatles Let It Be Phil Spector recordings, as in Phil Spector did too much with mm-hmm. Let It Be. Do you have a favorite song from Butterfly? Uh, no, I This have, is something that folks were talking about a lot this yeah. past week. And I do not have It's very controversial. Even Uh, though I probably think Breakdown is one of Mariah's greatest songs mm -hmm. ever, I'm not even sure it's the best song on this album. Well, okay. So Breakdown is probably, uh, you know, artistically the best song on the Mm -hmm. album. Possibly one of her greatest recordings ever. But I, I mean, I love it. But I also love Baby Doll. Mm Mm-hmm. I know people prefer 4th of July and whatever. Or no, um, The, the roof. roof. People prefer The Roof. I don't. Uh, Baby Doll, I adore because it's giving that vocal production that you really started to hear in the 90s. Mm, wrap you and up nice you, and tight. Yeah. Love you all through the night. And I don't think you hear quite enough of. It's giving you SWV, Brandy, that sort of layering that Mariah, and she didn't invent it, but she brought it to a new level Mm -hmm. when people were wondering what is this white girl doing she was letting you know that not only did she understand the assignment she wrote the assignment (laughs) and also that she's not white yes (laughs) um that stretch of tracks four through seven it's a murderer's role of impeccable Mm r&b like just jaw-dropping stuff the roof into 4th of July, into Breakdown, and then Baby Doll. You can't beat that. Like, that alone would ruin most people's careers <laughs> put up against it. You know? Right, right. And the great thing about this album is that right off the bat, it gives you the these blockbuster singles, right? Honey, honey, honey is like, hello, I'm announcing that my career is t- in a new era. I'm doing this big James Bond, Puff Daddy video. Honey a lot. Like, it, she gives you the blockbusters right off the bat. And then says, oh, wait, this is next level R&B craftsmanship. What you might be tempted to call, you know, number four. What you might be tempted to call an album cut. But, sweetie, it's iconic. (laughs) Honey and so many of her lead up-tempo songs are kind of not taken seriously enough for how genius they are. Because Mm -hmm. it seems to come so easily to her. And I guess people don't assign gravitas to that kind of stuff. But Honey is such an earworm. Yes. And I mean, well, the other thing is the era in which this was released, like that type of music wasn't appreciated by the industry or by critics. This was still very much like the white male rocker phase of music criticism. Mm. So now, you know, they make concessions to black music they feel is more cerebral. But the Grammys is only very recently coming around to pop music. And to R&B music. And only now. Right? And only, but it's only certain people, right? It's only, only because it's it's her, it's 
It's not her. It's only since 2018. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Because it's only since 2018 that critics have started to really appreciate Mariah's genius. Right, right. But you have new artists who are, are being recognized who recognize Mariah as an influence, right? But she, like, she didn't get that sort of celebration when she was making the music originally no she got which the, happens she got the it happens the creditation of being the source of all this wailing and melismatic nonsense <laughs> yes the right like the american idol mm-hmm. style like, god right? that's all her fault mm-hmm. like don't don't blame her for christina aguilera mm-hmm. she did that on her own seven minutes of the beautiful ones i know this is kind of a controversial opinion a lot of folks think that it's the weakest spot on the album i adore it uh, yeah i actually quite like it yeah and uh yeah i've i know prince's version very well i like this one too is that a crime mm, i mean i like this one better but that's just me <laughs> and then the album closes also with well, with outside which... i like i feel for you by Shaka Khan better than Prince's but anyway <laughs> I like nothing compares to you more than Prince's <laughs> this is not a shit on Prince no because segment. actually one of my favorite songs ever is I Would Die For You by Prince mm-hmm. uh, shout out to Outside one of the most important closing tracks in the history of music <laughs> yeah <laughs> on a it, personal note bar, anyway. bar none Thank you for listening to our long-winded, tangential diversion with this mailbag episode. Thank you for your submissions. And if we didn't read your question, we hope to get to it soon. Thank you to everybody who's recently given us a review. You have done yeoman service in helping to boost the profile of this show. We appreciate it. We appreciate you. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. We are at The Body Serve on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you for listening. Till next time. Okay.